Amen. Well, will you be seated and join me in prayer? Well, Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your love. Your love never fails. You're the same yesterday, now, and always. Father, we thank you that you demonstrated your love for us by sending your son to die on that cross. And Father, we ask that we would never grow weary of looking to the cross. And Lord, that we would not become insensitive to the ugliness of our sin, that it brings pain, shame, and death. Because of the reality of the cross, where you brought in your own son pain, shame, and even death. Father, we thank you that your love for us is, goes beyond our imagination. Um, and Lord, we marvel at the cross that the living God would be killed and tortured in a way that would make us wince even if it were just an animal. Um, but Lord, we thank you that knowing us, knowing the depth of our sin, knowing that we were enemies before we came to know you, that you chose death on the cross because of your love for us, because you want relationship with us. And Father, we thank you for this upward call that we have in Christ Jesus. We thank you for how life-giving, how satisfying it is to know you, to live in obedience to your word, to live in fellowship with each other. And so, Lord, we do lift up our picnic time uh, later today. Lord, we ask that it be a wonderful time of fellowship, of strengthening the bonds within our body, and pointing each other towards you. We thank you that we can meet in joy together in our picnic because we're the redeemed people of God. And Lord, we lift up all the different ministries going on in our church body this fall. We lift up RSCP. Lord, we ask that you would just be known among our guests who show up and our volunteers. Um, we ask that it would be a time of participating in your love for our community. Lord, we lift up the men's and women's Bible studies that are starting up again as well, and Isaiah and Romans. And Lord, we ask that you would guide our newcomers to get plugged in to different groups and to get connected and to find fellowship. And Lord, we pray for Chris and Nancy and, and baby Bennett. Lord, we ask for your strength and wisdom in parenting. Lord, we ask that Bennett would come to know you and love you. We thank you for this precious gift of life. And Lord, we do lift up also the people of Morocco with the earthquake um, and over 2,000 people uh, dead, 2,000 people who you love made in your image. And so Lord, we ask that you would be just tangibly present, comforting the, those who are mourning. Um, and Lord, we 
just pray for um, the families and the people there. And Father, we lift up our hearts to you this morning. We ask that you'd speak to us through the message Sean has for us from your word today. We ask to see the wonder of this story afresh, even if it's familiar to us. Father, may you show us your love in a special and powerful way today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Number one, Todd Poulter will be our guest speaker. He'll be speaking on John 10, and he's titled it, The Good Shepherd and the Other Sheep. Todd has a PhD in transformational leadership, and many of his leadership insights you can read in his recent book, Learning to Lead at the Feet of Jesus. Todd is one of the most humble guys I've ever met, and I'm really looking forward to his teaching. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep who are not, that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. Well, Sean, would you come and teach us? All right, thanks, Alan, and good morning. If you don't know me, my name is Sean Reese. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's great to be with you again back in John. If you remember, which you probably don't, we started John um, in April of 2020. So we started right after everything shut down because of the pandemic. I preached the first few sermons from my living room. Some of you may remember that. Uh, I had to close the windows because of the chicken noise. And I had to close the blinds because my kids kept trying to make me laugh. So here we are. Three and a half years later, and we're finally near the end. So let's review a bit of where we've been, just to set the context. The Gospel of John is split into two halves. The first half, chapters 1 to 11, is called the Book of Signs. In these chapters, John invites us to come and see a Jesus who performs remarkable deeds, what John calls signs. For John, signs are miracles which point beyond the miracle to an underlying spiritual truth. There were six of these signs and we're waiting for one more, one more final climactic sign. In the book of signs, John also invited us to come and see a Jesus who makes extraordinary claims about himself. It was in chapter 7 where some policemen were sent to arrest Jesus, but they come back without him. And why? Because in their words, 
No one ever spoke like this man. Indeed, no one ever has, and no one ever will. Jesus' claims about himself describe his identity as the great I am, the one who makes the living God known. That was all in the first half of the gospel. The second half of the gospel, chapters 12 to 21, is called the book of glory. It is in these chapters where we will see the ultimate glory of God. It is here where Jesus washes the disciples' feet, where he teaches them in the upper room, where he prays for his disciples, and where the climax of the gospel is, the passion and the resurrection. Today, as Alan said, we begin in chapter 18. Chapter 18 comes right after chapter 17. Um, And last spring, we studied chapter 17, which is the prayer of Jesus, that very dense prayer spoken on Thursday night of Holy Week. And it prepared us for this passion narrative. In that prayer, Jesus prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Now is the time for glory. For John, glory means the revelation of the nature and character of someone. It means the revelation of what someone is truly like. So this fall, we will see the supreme revelation of what the living God is really like. We will behold glory. Now, we begin today with the first 12 verses of chapter 18. These verses will introduce us to the passion narrative, but they'll also provide a lens a lens for reading the rest of the story. So what I want to do this morning is walk through these 12 verses, make a few comments along the way, and at the end, I want to share four key points that I think John wants us to know and wants us to keep in mind as we read the rest of the Passion narrative. So I invite you into our text this morning, beginning in chapter 18 and verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, so that's the prayer, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Well, I like this painting. Go ahead and bring up this painting. I like this painting by Giotto because I think it, it really shows the chaos in these verses that we'll be reading this morning. So it's Thursday night, or very early Friday morning. This is Good Friday. And according to John, as I said, Jesus has just finished praying for his disciples, and he goes forward across the Kidron Valley into an unnamed garden. Now, surprisingly, 
John is the only writer, the only gospel writer that mentions that Jesus' arrest happens in a garden. I didn't know that until I studied this. Um, But John will also mention that Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection also happen in gardens. So John frames his entire passion and resurrection narrative with a garden theme, which I think he does on purpose to evoke Genesis. Remember, John began his gospel evoking Genesis. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And here John returns us again to Genesis, to a garden. In the beginning, the whole human race began in a garden. And in that first garden, the Garden of Eden, the first Adam failed. He failed because he went his own way in disobedience. The first Adam failed because he tried to live independent of God. The first Adam failed because he tried to be his own God. In that first garden, life brought about death because of the failure of the first Adam. And now, after the first verse of chapter 18, we enter another garden. And the future of humanity hangs in the balance again. Will Jesus follow the first Adam and go his own way? Or will he obey his father? Will he be about his own will or will he be about his father's will? I think John is posing that question for us right here. We're then introduced to Judas. Ever since Judas' first appearance in this gospel, John has labeled him the betrayer. So the reader knows what's coming. Just a few hours ago in that upper room, Jesus had washed Judas' feet and he had offered him bread after the Last Supper. And then Judas had left the upper room alone to make arrangements for the betrayal and John said it was night. That was love's last appeal for Judas. So Judas returns now to the story later that night in a garden ready to betray God. Like that first garden, an evil one is working behind the scenes. But Judas is not alone. He arrives on the scene with two groups of people. The first group was a cohort of Roman soldiers A cohort could be as large as as 600 men. (laughs) A bit of overkill, isn't it? The second group was a group of officers from the religious leaders. These were essentially servants of those leaders. In this gospel, this group was known as the temple policemen. So this group probably contained some of those same men that back in chapter 7 had went to arrest Jesus but came back without him because no one ever spoke like this man. 
Many scholars see in this mob a representation of the entire world. A representation of all those who organize themselves without God. Gentile Rome, unbelieving Jews, and the unfaithful church. So in this text, Jesus is confronting the world. Now also notice what, the, what this group carries with them. Lanterns and torches and weapons. John's details are very precise. Two instruments of light along with weapons. Throughout the gospel, John has been consistently returning to the themes of light and darkness. And so here, it seems, John is contrasting this evil group with artificial light with the one who says, I am the light. In other words, the fake lights of the world are marching toward the light of the world. So also the weapons. It seems John is contrasting these instruments of darkness with Jesus, the light. Weapons are designed to kill and destroy. Jesus has come to give life and to give it to the full. Verse four. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Jesus, who knows all that is coming, now goes forward and confronts the mob directly. And he confronts them with a question, a question he asks twice. Whom do you seek? Do you know that these are the first words he speaks in this gospel? He spoke these words. He asked this question to the first disciples. He will also end this gospel with the same question to Mary Magdalene. In, uh, at the empty tomb. So this question is the fundamental question of this gospel. Whom or what do you seek? As we have walked through the gospel, we've met people seeking all kinds of things. Seeking their own glory, seeking to hide from their past, seeking protection, some seeking to destroy Jesus as here. You and I walk through our days seeking all kinds of things too. We're, we're intentional beings. Just about everything we do is for some 
purpose, for the sake of something that we're seeking. So day in and day out, we chase after all kinds of things. And who or what we chase after will, de will determine much of our actions each day. I, I submit to you, this is why how we start the day is so important. The famous Scottish author, George MacDonald, once said, the first task of the day is to break the shell of self. Break the shell of self. How do we break the shell of self? We seek first Jesus, his kingdom, and his righteousness. Jesus actually commanded that in this Sermon on the Mount. So whom do you seek as you walk through your days? So after Jesus confronts the crowd with that question, they answer, Jesus of Nazareth, to which Jesus literally says, I am. Ego eimi in the Greek. And notice how the mob responds. I love how Tissot paints this. <laughs> this mob of over 600 men fall to the ground. This weaponized mob, representing the greatest army the world had ever seen, was made powerless by two words, I am. And why? Because these words are the same words God uses of himself in the Old Testament. And the mob can't help but fall before the presence of God. This is simply the automatic response when God shows up. And notice the irony. The mob falls to the ground and they're, then they're going to get up and arrest him. Now, if you know John, you'll, you'll also know this isn't the first time Jesus has used those majestic words. There are seven famous I am statements with predicates throughout the gospel, such as I am the bread of life, I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and so forth. But Jesus also, like here, uses these majestic words without a predicate in a few other places. Probably the most dramatic time is during the Feast of Tabernacles in chapter 8. In an intense debate with the Jewish authorities, three times Jesus says, I am. 8.24, unless you believe that I am you will die in your sins. 8.28, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. And 8.58, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. No one ever spoke like this man. 
three dramatic times in chapter 8 and three more times here in chapter 18. And the first time sends the mob to the ground. As Augustine said, with no other weapon than his own solitary voice uttering the words, I am, he knocked down, repelled, and rendered helpless that great crowd, even with all their ferocious hatred and terror of arms. What? Will his power be like when he comes to reign who had this kind of power when he had come to die? The majestic I am slayed the enemy. Presumably, even Judas fell down before Jesus. And after the scene is repeated in verses 8 and 9, I suppose with the mob on the ground, Jesus instructs them to let his disciples go. Notice John's comment in verse 9. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. We read right by that, but this is an extraordinary statement by John. We've seen this formula, this fulfillment formula throughout John, and we'll see it more in the coming chapters. But previously, when this formula was used, it fulfilled, it, he was speaking of fulfilled words, referring to Old Testament scripture. But here, this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me, I have lost, not one. This quote here is something Jesus just said back in chapter 17. These aren't Old Testament words. These are Jesus' words. So what John is telling us is that the words spoken by Jesus, the word, are now on the same level as Old Testament scripture. Verse 10, then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Giotto painted this into his famous painting. You can see it up there on the, on the left side. Peter. <laughs> oh, Peter. He still doesn't get it, does he? Obviously, he's not on board with where everything is going. He draws his sword, cuts off a servant's ear. Not only was it reckless, but he appears to be a pretty bad aim, too. <laughs> Only a few hours ago in that upper room, Peter had passionately assured Jesus he would lay down his life for him. And Jesus at that time rebuked him, saying, Peter, you'll disown me three times tonight. So now it's almost as if Peter pulls out his sword and I'll show you, Jesus, I was serious. <laughs> And Jesus rebukes him again. Peter, put your sword away. Violence for the sake of Jesus is never the right answer. Never the right answer. 
As one writer says, violence only cuts off the ears physically and spiritually of Jesus' opponents. Violence has never served Jesus' person or cause. This fall, we're going to follow Jesus' walk the path of suffering according to the Father's will. And if we're going to follow him, this is our path too. The church's mission will go forward not by fighting, but by suffering. Those are difficult words to hear in our culture, in any culture, but, but that's the Jesus way. So Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? The cup. Jesus will reject Peter and the sword for the Father and the cup. This could not have been an easy choice. Jesus knows what the cup entails. He knows all that would happen to him. The cup is the cup of wrath. It's the cup of suffering. It's the cup of judgment that we all deserve to drink because of our sins. But Jesus will take our place. This is the Father's will. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, as Paul says later. Leslie Newbegin says it this way, in the mercy of God, the great mercy of God, the cup of God's righteous wrath against the sin of the world is given into the hands, not of his enemies, but of his beloved son. And the son will drink the cup down to its dregs. For us, this is the gospel. This is the good news. Jesus takes our place. He entrusts himself in obedience into the hands of his loving father. It reminds me of a story by, um, about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of my heroes. At one point, when he was a young man, he was here in America, and uh, he met a young French pastor, and they were discussing what each one wanted to become. These are the kind of things pastors talk about. And the, and the other pastor said, well, I want to become a saint. Bonhoeffer thought about that for a moment and he said, no, I don't want that. And then he went to the scene in the garden, this scene, and he said, I wanna have, I wanna learn to have faith. What I want is to learn to throw myself completely into the arms of God like Jesus does in the garden. He goes on, I don't want to become arrogant over successes or shaken by my failures. I want to completely renounce making something of myself. I want to learn to entrust myself to God. Because this 
is genuine faith. Of course, we all know that he, Bonhoeffer, became a martyr because of his genuine faith. When our circumstances are desperate or lead us into fear or seem to lack anything of God, can we continue to genuinely trust in our good Father like Jesus does in the garden? Verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. This mob representing the world and led by Judas arrested God and bound him and led him away to his trials which we'll look at next week. Well that's our text for today. Sobering text indeed. This time I'm going to call up the worship team and uh, they can join me on stage. As I said at the beginning, this text, this sobering text, gives us a lens for how to read and understand the rest of the story. And in particular, I think John gives us four key takeaways to keep in mind so that we can read it well as we move forward. Number one, we know who is in charge of the unfolding events. Answer, Jesus. Jesus is in charge of everything that will happen, not the powers of evil, not the religious leaders, not the political leaders. Jesus is in charge. And how do we know that? Well, John uses a very specific word in verses one and four to describe Jesus' actions. Jesus went out or went forward. In verse, in verse one, Jesus went forward across the Kidron Brook. And in verse four, Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, went forward and said, whom do you seek? The word for going forward is the same word used in other places in John for Jesus going forth or coming forth from the Father. The point is that this word has the meaning of going forward to fulfill a mission. Going forward to fulfill a mission. Jesus goes forward across the Kidron Brook. And when he sees the arresting mob with their lanterns, torches, and weapons, he goes forward to fulfill his mission. And what John wants us to understand is that Jesus is not a victim. He is not a victim. It would be a wrong reading of the passion if we walked through this narrative and read it as though Jesus were a victim. He's not a victim. He's not a helpless victim. He'll become helpless when he's on that cross, but he is no victim. 
What is happening here is a fulfillment of what he said in the Good Shepherd Discourse, what we read in our scripture reading today. Jesus says, I am the Good Shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. I lay down my life for the sheep that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus is going forward to fulfill a mission. He's a man on a mission, and he's going to be in charge of all that happens. Number two, we know he watches out for those he loves. Verse eight, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. Jesus, the good shepherd, is still looking out for his sheep in the midst of being arrested. The wolves have come. And he is protecting his sheep. He knows them by name, and they know him by name. Peter doesn't need a sword because Peter has the great I am as his protector. And the great I am will not lose anyone. Number three, we know that this is the will of Jesus' Father. In other words, what will happen in the next few hours of Good Friday is not a horrible mistake. It's horrible, and it's horrifying. But listen again to Jesus' words in verse 11. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? So we know that even though what will happen will be horrifying, it's not an accident. This is the will of the Father. For God so loved the world, he gave his only Son. And number four, we know who it is who is going to the cross. Answer, the great I am. John wants to make sure we know this is the incarnate God who is going forward. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is the Creator God who goes forward. This is the great I am whom the entire mob falls before. This is the living God who they are arresting. This is God who they are binding with ropes. This is God who they will put on trial before Annas and Caiaphas. This is God who will stand in the dock before Pilate. This is God before whom Pilate will ask what is truth. Wrong question, Pilate. This is God who they will condemn to death. This is God who they will scourge. This is God on whom they will put the, the crown of thorns. This is God who they will nail to the cross. And this is God who will die on that cross. So as we go through this narrative, John wants us to know right here, right at the very beginning, that this is the living God going forth as a man on a mission. 
a mission to bring salvation to the world, to you and to me, so that those who believe in him will not perish, but have eternal life. To our great God, be glory, honor, and power forever and ever. Amen. Now receive this benediction. As you go, may our great and glorious God, the one who so loves you, he sent his son to a cross for you. May he bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you and give you peace. Amen. Amen. And we'll see you at the picnic. <laughs>